Well, hello, everybody. It is my privilege to also welcome you to this time we have together with one another. We are so glad that you've come. My name is Jeff. I am one of the pastors here at Pathway, and we welcome you, whether you're a regular part of the Pathway family, or maybe you are a parent or a grandparent who has come out here today. We're so glad that you have come out, and I, and I have no confusion about why you're here I mean, uh, because about three minutes ago, every one of you had your camera pointed up here at the stage. And I don't see any cameras now. And, and so I know why you're here, but uh, I get the privilege of taking us for a few moments at least into God's Word. We've been thinking about the idea of the wise men. And there's a lot of very, very interesting things about the wise men, and we're going to dig into that in just a moment. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to be here. We know that your presence is with us. We, as the wise men, also come to worship you, to adore your name. And I do pray that you would just lead us in these moments that we have together today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, one of our daughters, for a brief period of time, decided that she wanted to learn how to play golf. And so I took her to the driving range, and I, and I showed her how to hold the club, and, and I showed her how to swing the club, and I said, do it like that. And I said, and I showed her a few more times, and she tried, and I, I showed her a few more, and I said, swing it like this. Do what I'm doing. Now, for those of you who've played golf with me, I know that you're thinking, if you want to teach somebody to play golf, don't emulate my swing, right? That's what you're thinking. I know, I can, I can read into your minds. But she actually took to it really, really well. She was a, a bit of a natural, and, and she had a good swing plane when she took it back, and, and she was able to generate a significant amount of clubhead speed when, when she swung on through the ball. The one thing that I hadn't gotten to teaching her yet was, was when you don't swing or when you shouldn't swing a golf club. Because it wasn't long after I'd stepped in and showed her a little something about her grip that she swung a little bit too soon. And that significant club head speed connected significantly with my head. <laughs> yeah, you can laugh. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was quite, I don't know exactly how hard she hit me, but when I came to, <laughs> I was on the ground. <laughs> I was on the ground. Now, I don't think I actually passed out when she hit me, but, uh, but uh, it, was, it was an experience that uh, I won't forget. And what I felt worst about is that just watching her melt into this puddle, feeling so bad about the fact that she had hit me. And of course, I just assured her, I said, honey, daddy's going to be just fine. After we get to the hospital, Daddy's going to be just, there was blood all over the place. We did go to the hospital, lots of stitches, all that kind of thing. But it was an experience um, to be sure. Now today she doesn't cry about it anymore. Today she just laughs about it and she said, well, I was just doing what you taught me to do. And uh, following the lead is how she sort of learned in that moment. Well, following the lead is something that we are going to be talking about here together today. It's actually what I'm, I'm titling this talk that we are going to be thinking about here for the next few minutes. Following the lead is something very important. It's how we learn a lot of things in life. Following the lead is how we, how we learn a lot of things that we come to know in sports or in singing or for painting or for hunting or for driving the car, whatever it might. 
Following the lead is how we learn many things. We're going to take a look at that here together. And the context that we're specifically going to be looking at is a place in the Scriptures. It's in Matthew's Gospel and in chapter 2. And if you would like, I would invite you to go ahead and turn to Matthew 2. If you have a Bible with you, if you have a Bible app on your phone, you can find it there also. There are some Bibles provided under every few seats where you're sitting here in the live auditorium. Or you can just Google Matthew 2, and I'm sure that that will pop up for you. And one of the reasons you might want to have it open is because I'm going to say some things here in the time that we have together that you might very well be like, no, 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 you're wrong. No, you're wrong. I know where it's set. It's right. And you might want to just have it there to check out and to check out what I'm saying as we make our way along. Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. Now Matthew chapter 2 begins with the story of the wise men who come from a distant land to come and to worship Jesus. And we can regularly find them in the manger scene with Jesus is there, and, and we've got Mary and Joseph, and we've got the shepherds. But my question is, were they actually there? Were they actually there? Certainly the traditional Christmas story says, yeah, they were right there, but were they really. That's what the traditional story says, but in this Advent season, we are in a series that we're talking about Christmas. We're asking about the rest of the story, because there are many many circumstances in the different passages that we find in the Christmas story that, that might be a little bit out of step with what we've come to learn and understand over the course of time. So this is what we're thinking about, and today's passage is a fascinating one, fascinating one because it challenges some of the notions and the assumptions that we make about the Christmas story. Those are parts of the story in Matthew chapter 2 and when it talks about the wise men. There's some things that are a little bit confused, I think, and some other things that are probably just ignored. I think about them as kind of being the things that are underknown and overlooked. And so we're going to take a look into this passage and see what we can learn here about the rest of the story. Now, a central thread that we see woven through this passage is this idea of following the lead, what we're talking about. That's the title of this message again, following the lead. And for the people who do, there are some benefits that result. And I want to point out a few of those for you. Actually, when you came in, you were probably given some what we call our pathway notes, our, our bulletin here. And uh, if you'd like to jot some things down as we go, there, that is available for you there. So the first of those, of, the, of those following the lead, is that when they follow the lead, if you do so, it will bring you to Jesus. Following the lead will bring you to Jesus. You already know that the wise men find their way to Jesus, but how do they get there? Let me show you. Matthew chapter 2, if you have it open, go ahead and look at it, verse 1, or you can just sit back and listen if you would prefer. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The NIV Bible calls this, these wise men Magi, probably suggesting that they were ones who studied everything from what was considered to be magic in the day to philosophy to religion. They studied the stars. They also studied natural science. They were pretty learned men, and they were wise in their understanding, and so people came to them, and they would desire to find answers on things that they might not understand themselves, and so they gained this sort of reputation, and these are the ones who have picked up and are on their way to go worship Jesus, and we're told that they're from the east, from the east, 
Now that probably means that they're from somewhere like Persia or like Arabia or like Babylon. And if that's the case, they've made a long trek to get to Jesus, probably upwards of a thousand miles to get there. In fact, here I've got a little map. I can, can show you this. If they started over in Babylon, they probably followed the Euphrates River. There was a trade route that ran right this direction, and they would have come this direction over into Syria and then on down through Palestine into Jerusalem and on into Bethlehem. That's probably the route that they would have followed a long route to be sure to get there. But here's the thing. When did they leave? How quickly could they leave? I mean, once they saw the star, they they couldn't just pick up and go immediately. They would have had to gather together a group of people who were going to make this journey with them, fellow travelers, to be along with them for the whole trek. That would have been important. They would have had to get their supplies ready for this lengthy journey. They would have had to fuel up the camels and stop the mail and get a goat sitter or whatever they had to do so that they would be able to make this journey. As soon as they saw the star, it's not like they left that day. Couldn't have happened that way. So, what about this star? Where normally we think of a star, we think about that celestial body. We think of the stars that we see in the sky. We think of our sun. Maybe we think of of planets. And that's a very natural way to understand what is going on here. And it could be that, but it might not be that because it doesn't completely jive with the thing that the stars do in this account. When we get on to verse 9, we see that the star actually went and stopped over the place where Jesus was which means that the star had to move independently from the way that stars otherwise are perceived to move as they are up there in the sky, which means that it would have had to been some sort of supernatural phenomenon to get it to do so. And I believe that that could happen. I don't have any doubt whatsoever that God is able to do that. But if we're opening up now supernatural ideas of what possibly would have happened or how it would have gone down, there are other possibilities as well. In the Scriptures, sometimes angels are referred to as stars. Could be that an angel was simply guiding them along. Or also, it could very well be that there is something like a Shekinah glory, we refer to it, that is going on, which is just a, it's just a divine appearance or a, a visible manifestation of the presence of God. And that wasn't unusual at all in Israel's history. They'd seen that before. You may remember that when they were on their way from Egypt over into the Promised Land, that God led them by a Shekinah glory, by His presence in the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. That certainly could have been how it would have happened, and it would allow for how the star appears, and then it goes away, and then the the star comes back, and how it's able to actually eventually lead the, the wise men to the exact place where Jesus was, rather than just a star that's way, way up in the sky. How would they have known exactly where that was pointing them? Now, the amount of time that it would have taken then for the wise men to get to Jerusalem or to Bethlehem naturally makes us wonder how they could have been there for Jesus' birth. And that's a good question. And the answer is that they probably weren't. Now, before you start composing your emails in your mind that you're going to send me, just consider for a moment the circumstances that are going on here. You can't exactly call it heresy because nowhere in the Bible does it say that they were there at Jesus' birth. 
It doesn't actually say that, kind of blowing our minds to think about it. In fact, verse 11 here says that the wise men came to the house where Jesus was, which is a different word that is used than when it refers to the manger that he was in when he was born. Now, I know that Hallmark has been making the claim in Christmas cards for a long, long time that they were there with him in the manger because that's what it depicts on all of their cards, but that probably isn't the case. And there's no need for the emails because, as far as I know, going against Hallmark's card division is not heresy. Now, if I had taken on Hallmark Christmas movies, I could understand your ire, but uh, certainly not just taking on the card division, right? So if the wise men didn't get there when Jesus was a newborn, when did they get there? Because we know that they arrived. We know that they showed up to worship him. When did they show up? Well, in order to figure that out, it's helpful to learn a little bit something more about another person who shows up in this story. In verse 2, we see that the wise men don't actually go to Bethlehem first. They go to Jerusalem, and they ask about this one who's been born king of the Jews. It makes some sense that they would start in Jerusalem. That's the capital city. That's where kings are. You think, well, that's where I'm going to find him. And they ask about this king of the Jews, which gets the attention of Herod, who is the king of all of Israel. And he wants to know all about this. And so in verse 3 we read, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And they had the answer. They should. They're the religious guys. They know because they knew Micah's prophecy, which says in Bethlehem, in Judea. So they give the answer, and then you see Micah's prophecy here in our passage. But you can see that Herod isn't letting go of this. Uh, Verse 7, he says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Of course, Herod's not interested in going to worship Jesus. He's interested in going to whack Jesus and, and get rid of him because he doesn't want any threats to the throne. Doesn't want that going on. Well, the wise men end up not going back to Herod to give him the information that they want, which is where is Jesus so they could go and take care of Jesus. And so he comes up with this other plan, which is a very cruel and a very ruthless plan, but it's also a sure way for him to get rid of Jesus. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, they didn't go back, he was furious And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. See, Herod had learned from the Magi that when the star first appeared, he found out that time frame from them. And he surmised, well, that must be the time when Jesus was born, when that star first appeared. And he knew that killing all of the boys under the age of two would certainly get rid of Jesus. Because based on the time when the star appeared. And so that's what he does. And so we can come to understand because of the the steps he takes to make sure he gets Jesus, that Jesus is somewhere between probably, you know, several months old and up to two years old when the wise men actually show up in Bethlehem at his house. And that dovetails with the fact that we find him in a house rather than in a manger and that he's referred to as a child. Well, regardless of how old Jesus was, verse 9 tells us how they found him. It says, if you look at it, they went on their way, 
And the star, this is, they're leaving Herod now, leaving Jerusalem, going to Bethlehem to find him. They went on their way, and the star that they had seen went, uh, when it rose, let's try that again. They went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Three gifts, that's interesting. You know why we have come to, in Western tradition, believe that there were three kings or three wise men? Because there are three gifts. Not because the scriptures tell us that there were three wise men. We don't know how many there were. In fact, Eastern tradition says that there were 12 wise men. We just don't know exactly, but we presume three because there were three gifts. They each brought a gift. Seems to make perfect sense. Well, some of the rest of the story when it comes to the wise men is recognizing what we've added to the story. And it's important that we would understand that so that we would not be drawing conclusions off of things that we presume are there that really isn't there to begin with. Kind of messes with your mind when you just think of all of the things that you've been taught, all of the things that you've understood, all of the ways that you've perceived it through time, down through the years. But there is one thing that is here, and it's abundantly, cl abundantly clear, and that is that the wise men are guided by this divine light. It's a, a beautiful thing. And following the lead of that star leads them to the exact place where they needed to be to find the Christ child. Truth is that God is always leading, and it isn't always by a star. It's not always like this. It'd be kind of cool if it was, but it's not. But he's always leading. Every day of your life, God is seeking to lead you to a better place, to a better decision, to a better outcome every single day. He's working to lead you and to lead me. Today, he was trying to lead you in a certain direction. You may or may not have sensed that and understood it and followed it, but he was working, revealing himself to work you in moving in his best direction for you. So here's my encouragement to you. Look up. As we go from this place, I want you to look up. And I don't just mean figuratively. I mean literally that you would look up. And when you do, use that as a trigger to ask yourself, God, how is it that you would seek, desire to lead me? What is it that you would want to be saying to me? How is it you want me to move? What is the better decision you would want me to make? What is the better outcome? Lord, how is it that you would desire to lead me? That we would look up and literally do so. See, we spend most of our day just looking around looking around at the places that we're going and the things that we need to go and get done, maybe looking at other people who are engaged in our lives. Maybe some of them have been frustrating us today, and we sort of got worked up about that, but we've been looking at them. We've been, we've been looking at the circumstances that come. Maybe we've been looking out and seeing the television or other distractions, all sorts of things like that pile into our lives all the time. Or we're also very good at looking down, looking down at the work that we're doing, looking down at our phones, looking down at our computers, looking down at our projects that are in front of us. But in the course of the day, rarely do you look up. Think about it. Rarely do you ever look up. 
And so what I would encourage you to do is, is to come up with some triggers, some things that would sort of jog your mind and say, look up, consider what there is. This is, there's lots of opportunities for this because you're getting notifications, you're getting buzzed and beeped all day long, right? Your computer, your phone, my watch does that all the time. There have been some that have been completely annoying, too. If I've been sitting at my desk too long, my watch says, time to stand. You might have one of those watches, too. And uh, so I ignore what it says, and I dismiss it, and I never stand up, right? And uh, there's another one. I just recently updated my watch, and now I get one that tells me to breathe. And it tells me how to breathe. How many of you get the breathe thing going? Yeah, all right, a lot of you do, yeah. I've been breathing for a long, long time. I got it figured out. I know how to breathe, but it keeps telling me to breathe. So now I've got a way to not get frustrated by those things when I'm told to stand up. Instead, I'm going to look up. Instead of being told to breathe, okay, I'll breathe, but I'm going to look up while I breathe. You might have other things you'd use as a trigger. How about a mirror? You stand in front of a mirror a lot of times, especially in the morning. How about when you look at yourself in the mirror, you're doing the horizontal thing. How about using that as a moment to literally look up, God, how is it that you would desire to lead me for this day? I think that this could be one of the transformational Christmas moments for us, or things we learn and apply in this Christmas, or whenever else throughout the day you're in, a mirror, in front of a mirror. Look, you can use all sorts of different triggers, but something that's going to remind you to look up because God is trying to communicate to you. And it's just that oftentimes we're just so busy moving so many different directions, we're not paying attention. But as we do so, as we'll look up, it's going to bring us, we will follow his lead, and it will bring us to Jesus. Vitally important, okay? Another thing. Following the lead will meet you in your need as well. Herod sent the wise men to Bethlehem and told them to report back. And that's what they intended to do. But they got some different instruction while they were there from God himself. Verse 12, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. There were dangers that they would have been in. They possibly could have given away important information about Jesus, so they're just warned, go a different direction. Don't even go through Jerusalem. And they didn't. That's not the only thing. In verse 13, we see another example of divine protection it's just the very next verse. It says, When they had gone, when the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. For the wise men and for Jesus, the Lord provided his leading, and by the following of that leading, they were spared. God met them in their need. That's what God does for his people. The psalmist says this. He says, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. He's a sun. He blesses. He's a shield. He protects. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Blameless doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It means that you're pursuing God. You're desiring to know more of him and who he is and apply that into your life. For Joseph, it's right after the wise men had gone that he receives this warning and he acts on it and he responds immediately, which is a good word for us. He gets the news. This is what I'm calling you, I'm leading you to do, and he acts on it like that. No delay, 
just immediate obedience. Sometimes I think that we, we get into a place where we, we hear from God and we know what we should do. We just don't ever get on it. Or we delay so long. Delayed obedience is disobedience, somebody says. They get right on it and it leads them to the place of blessing and God meets them in their need. And just as he does for them, he will do the same thing for us. And there's one more thing. Final truth is that following the lead will guide you to God's plan. The rest of the story shows us some pieces to God's plan for this young couple and their toddler that are oftentimes, maybe even usually, overlooked. We've just read of one of them, some of it in verse 13, to protect Jesus. His parents flee the country and they go to Egypt, which sounds really exotic, doesn't it? My wife and I had the opportunity to go to Egypt a couple of years ago, and it was exotic, one of the most exotic trips that we have ever taken. And it sounds very distant, and it sounds very remote, and it sounds very sort of mysterious to think about going to Egypt. But that's not how Mary and Joseph would have received that. Go to Egypt for them, it wasn't all that far. It would be similar to us saying, go to Akron. <laughs> that's what, it's about that distance. About 75 miles to Egypt, that's about what, it, I don't know why you'd want to go to Akron, but it's about this, it's the same sort of thing. It wasn't all that far. On top of that, it sounds very foreign to us, and, and knowing Israel's history in Egypt, their slavery, it, it sounds like it wouldn't have been a very good place to be told to go, but at this particular time, there would have been loads of, of Jewish settlements in Egypt. In fact, in Alexandria, it was believed that, estimated that there were about a million people million Jews there in Alexandria at the time. So they would have been able to fit in without problem. And most important is that they were beyond the jurisdiction of Herod, and he couldn't touch them where they were. Following the lead guided them into God's perfect plan. Then comes some more divine guidance, verse 19. We're almost done here. After Herod died, it's probably only been three or four months they've been in Egypt, and Herod dies, and an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, or go back home, he's saying. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. As Joseph arrive, arrives with his wife Mary and Jesus in Nazareth, they've just completed quite a tour. You can see some of where they have been. Actually, Joseph and Mary were living in Nazareth at the time when when the, the word came out from Caesar Augustus that everybody needed to go to their ancient homeland, to their ancestral homeland, in order to register, in order to, for the census to take place. So they went from Nazareth down into Jerusalem and then on to Bethlehem. As we talked about last week, they, had, they spent some time then in Jerusalem and back to Bethlehem. And now, because of the warning that they've been given, they've headed on down into Egypt and now again, because of the direction that they've been given back up into Nazareth, which is where they have now taken up residence. And there's several things that we could learn from that journey that they've been on. But right at the top of the list, as significant as any, is the sovereignty of God and his providential leading. 
of this couple and the unfolding of his providential hand in all of what is going on. I hope that you have been in our Pathway Christmas devotionals, working your way through that. Just, just uh, this week, we kick into a brand new topic, which is the providence of God, how he leads and directs, how everything is in his hand, hands, and it is true. Following the lead, kept guiding these folks in this story into God's plan, and each step along the way, they saw God's provision, and as they did, they continued to be able to trust a little bit more, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. And that's the challenge I want to leave with you, with all of us, that we would be willing to lean into the leading that God would have for our lives. Maybe it's that leading that you discover as you, as you look up, as you ask God, where is it that you would take me? And as you follow that lead, as you do so little by little, every time you step and he follows through, you gain a little bit more trust and a little bit more confidence in moving forward. But for many of us, what we do instead is that we, we hear the leading from God. That hasn't been the problem. We know what he might be leading us to do, but we're reluctant to do so. And we step back, or we just resist, or we just don't go down that path. And because we don't, we don't we're not gaining any sort of confidence in moving forward. We're teaching ourselves to not trust. We're teaching ourselves to just simply not follow his lead, just to follow our own lead. And we just sort of slog our way through, and you're wondering, why is it that my spiritual life doesn't take off? Why is it that I don't have a greater sense of God's presence in my life? Why is it that I'm not soaring in my contemplation of who God is? And it could very well be because we're refusing to follow the lead. Because we know what it is He'd call us to do, we're just not willing to go. I can tell you this, as soon as you do, you will see God respond because that's what God does. He meets us in our place of need. Following the lead brings us to Jesus. It leads us to a place where our hearts can become transformed, and that's what I desire for you and for me in this Christmas season. And we can get there simply as we follow his lead. When it comes to the experience of the wise men traveling to see the Christ child, there's much to the rest of the story that we can contemplate because it all points to how God is active in their lives, we see in the scriptures, and how he's active and desires to be more so in ours as well. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the fact that there is a leading that you desire for us. There's a leading that you are giving, that you are providing moment by moment, day by day. Lord, I just pray today that we would be people who would be willing to look up not just figuratively, but to really engage, to actually look up and ask ourselves, Lord, what is it that you would be desiring to lead us into today? How is it that you desire to guide us? What is it that you have in store for me this day? Lord, I pray that we would be courageous enough, faithful enough to take the steps that we believe that you are leading us to that we would respond and that through doing so we would find you and that we would find ourselves growing closer and closer into the people that you've created us, designed us to be, that we might not be stuck in our spiritual walk, but that we would be soaring. So Lord, I pray that you would use this passage, that, we'd you, that you would use the light of your son Jesus, not just come into our world, but shining on our own lives to draw us close 
that we might be transformed in this season, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.